1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to have a guest with me in the studio uh, this morning who is a local lady from the Philadelphia area. Her name is Judge Renee Caldwell-Hughes, and she is the chief executive officer of the American Red Cross for the southeastern Pennsylvania region. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
1: I'm really excited and thrilled that you you were able to find the time to come in and share your story with my listeners today. So thank you very much. Um, As we always do, we we start at the beginning, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your years growing up in uh, Virginia. I understand you grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia.
2: I'm from Lynchburg, Virginia, if you can't tell. I I do not have a Philly accent, but yes, I'm from Lynchburg, Virginia, and I'm the oldest Of five. Um, So we are a big family, a big, close family. And, um, you know, my mom and dad, they had a firm, rock solid belief that all five of us would go to college. And they were so fixed on it and so firm about it that I did not know college was optional, (laughs) I thought college was required the same way that high school is required. People used to say, what are you going to do when you grow up? I'm like, I'm going to go to college. <laughs> you know, I have to. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I went to University of Virginia undergrad, mm-hmm. and I went in an amazing, amazing program. And I would encourage people to look at UVA um, as one of the options for their children. It's a program called the Eccles Scholars. And what Eccles Scholars are are, you have complete intellectual freedom. So normally you go to school, you've got to take your first-year courses, your second-year courses, your third-year courses. If you're an ECHO scholar, you can take any course. As a freshman, you could take a senior-level class. As long as you could convince the professor you could handle the work, you could take the course. So you had complete intellectual freedom, and it was An amazing experience, and Virginia is just an incredible place, and we are number three in the nation in basketball, so that's a really good thing, too. (laughs) I think we're number six. 7 Villanova. Yeah, Villanova's number 7. <laughs> it's
1: been an exciting season.
2: Yeah, it's a great season.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um tell me a little bit about mom and dad. Is which did your mom work outside the house? I know you were the oldest.
2: I'm so. the oldest of 5, but yes. with, but I I feel like I have a really special story. My father actually didn't graduate from high school even though he was a track star. His mother died when he was very young and he was being raised by his sisters, which is challenging because they were older and married. And he didn't graduate from high school. My mother did. She was the, they both are the baby of eight. Wow. Yes, they both are. They both were from big families. My mother graduated from high school and um, we are what you call stair steps. In other words, we're every two years apart. Okay. So we're stair steps. But my parents had real vision. My father worked his entire life, three jobs. And my mother worked outside the home as well. Um, But. And then my uncle lived with us until I was 17. So we were raised by the three of them, and they were very, very, very clear academics first, you had to be involved in school. So we were, my brothers are all athletes. Now, when I was growing up, girls weren't serious athletes. Right. I think if I were a girl today, my father would definitely have made me an athlete. Yeah. <laughs> but back then, not so much. Yeah. Not so much. And so my sister and I were in student council, and we were in the debate team, and she was a cheerleader. And I talked too much, so I was president of student council. (laughs) So, but we were really involved.
1: You were busy. I would say that's one of the best things you can do for your kids today is to keep them busy. Yeah, I,
2: I think you have to keep them engaged in a meaningful way. Yes. You know, I mean, one of the things that was important for me with my son is that, although I I too have been a working parent, we had dinner together every single night. Period. That's hard to do. It's very hard to do. Yeah. And sometimes you have to redefine what it means to have dinner. Some, sometimes it is agreeing to eat McDonald's <laughs> on your way back from lacrosse practice. <laughs> Whatever works. <laughs> but, but it's spending that time together. And yes. I think that's really important. So while you, ki- you want your kids to be busy, you want them to be connected to you and engaged with you um, so that they begin to soak up your values.
1: Yeah, well, you, you're certainly an example to them in, in the work that you do. Oh. Um, what, what does your son do? Is he in school?
2: No, my son graduated in May from the United States Military Academy wow. at West Point. He is a second lieutenant and he, got, he graduated from West Point May 28th, got married June 6th to another West Point graduate. Wow. Yeah. So he now is getting ready to go to Ranger School. Um, and Ranger School. A lot of people know about Navy SEALs. Mm-hmm. In the Army, there's Delta and Rangers, and so these are um, uh, these are the kick butt. <laughs> the kick butt soldiers. I don't know how any other way to put it, you know. Um but I'm very 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 proud of him. Oh, I'm I'm nice. very proud of him. He's a very special kid. Yeah. That's know?
1: wonderful. That's you know that's a tough thing as a mother um to watch your your child, you know, take that that course but Yeah, it is. Perhaps, it's very yes.
2: interesting. You should say that though because my mom said to me one time when I was really um, feeling sad, you know, because I was like, oh, my God, he's grown, he's married, he's in the military. And she said, then you did your job well. She said, you, your commitment was to raise a healthy, happy, independent child, a child that is self-reliant. She said, you did that. Mm-hmm. And she said, the downside to raising a self-reliant, happy, independent child is that they grow up and they make their own path. Right. She says, but that's the mark of having done your job right.
1: That's right. But they always come back. They I say that to my son. You can leave, but you always better come exactly. back. Exactly.
2: I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. It's like <laughs> you can go anywhere you want to in the world as long as there's an airport so that's we right. can see each other. Stay
1: connected. Yeah. Mm. Um, tell me about the, your high school, I understand, was kind of a special place. It was a public school, but it was it was diverse. And, yeah. and I think that <laughs> probably is, is something that helped shape you are today. Well, you know, it's
2: actually very um interesting. I um grew up in a really small town as you know. Lynchburg is is very very small. When I got to Philadelphia, um my son's father is in politics and his senatorial district is when I moved here in 1985 was bigger than my hometown. Wow. Oh, it was incredible. I was I was like this is amazing. But what was interesting about my high school is that you know, integration was mandated as a result of Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954. So every state, every community had to come up with a plan to desegregate the schools. Well, my city was so small, we had two high schools. So it was decided that the larger, more modern high school would be the high school and the other high school would become the feeder school, so you would go there for seven, eight, you know, and you would go to nine and then you would go 10, 11 and 12 at the high school. So everybody without regard to race, without regard to economics, everyone went to the same middle school. Everyone went to the same high school. And so we had to learn how to live together and work together. So it actually turned out to be a brilliant plan for us. The two schools were on different parts of town. Mm -hmm. And so at some point everybody had to bus or have a car, but it meant that we all had to come together and work together. And we actually didn't have as many problems as a lot of northern cities did because, you know, it was it. And no one went to private school where I'm from. Yeah, No one. Bad kids went to private school. Everybody wanted to go to public school because that was where everyone vested their time and energy and Mm -hmm. their tax dollars in public education.
1: That's so interesting. What is your view on, you know, we talk often and hear about um, girls going to all-girl academies, and there's such an advantage, I see, as I'm listening to you describe your experience in the public school, diverse, that really shapes, you know, your ability to connect with people, and um, how do you feel about the all-girls schools, and and with regard to leadership?
2: Well, um, I think that there is a place. So, for example, my son went to an all boys high school. Um, he is the United States Military Academy at West Point, is co ed, but his high school was single sex. Mm-hmm. And I have several friends whose daughters are at single sex high schools. High school is such a raucous time. Mm-hmm. Hormones are kicking in. You're trying to define who you are as a person. Are you a leader? Are you a follower? You know, what values do you really own? Because Mm -hmm. your parents have spent an enormous amount of time trying to shape you, but ultimately you have to decide who you want to be. And one of the things about single-sex education at the high school level is that you have a time to flourish and thrive without all of the drama associated with um, hormones raging Distractions. And distractions Mm -hmm. associated with hormones raging. So I think that there is value. Having said that, I think that every family has to decide what's right for their child. I know for my son and for many of my friends, single-sex high school education was perfect. You get to learn leadership. Um, The distractions are minimal. Mm -hmm. You focus. And that's really important. But I then turn around and say, I really do believe in co-ed colleges, because you've got to learn how to deal with all kinds of people if you're going to be a success in this world, Mm -hmm. you know, and life is not easy. So you've got to work with people of opposite genders. You've got to work with people from different faiths, cultures, you know, everything. You've got to learn how to survive in a diverse world. And I think that makes you stronger and better and more creative.
1: Well, it's more interesting, isn't it's it?
2: Much more interesting. Much more interesting. Much more interesting. Yeah.
1: So, um, you went to Georgetown for yes. law school, and w- how old were you when you made the decision you were going to go to law school? It
2: was well, it's very interesting. Okay, so I want to tell you one of my theories and philosophies of life. Life is like your hand. There are many paths to your goal. It's a question of how you set your goal. Because when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a jet pilot. Okay. okay. Yes, I wanted to be a jet <laughs> pilot. Now, I have on contacts today, and most people in Philadelphia have no idea that I wear glasses because my glasses are thicker than old-fashioned Coke bottles. <laughs> I can't see for diddly, okay? <laughs> so jet pilot was not exactly oh. <laughs> an option. That was not happening. <laughs> and so then I decided, okay, I'm going to be a pediatrician. Now, I am told you I'm the firstborn of five, mm-hmm. that college was required in my family, so uh, Please don't think I'm a nerd, although my son tells me I am a nerd of the highest order. I was a straight-A student, right? But I get to UVA, University of Virginia, and I flunk chemistry. Whoa. the <laughs> world is coming to an <laughs> end. What is going end. on? <laughs> I didn't know what to think. My parents didn't know what to think. It was like, okay, this is not good. I'm like, okay, I'm not ready. I can't do this. And, and fortunately, I had really good advisors. Who, who said to me, you try a different path. You're clearly smart. What resonates with you? That didn't resonate with you, which was a surprise for me because I'm a numbers person. Mm-hmm. Well, economics did resonate with me. I switched over to economics, and you know, life is circuitous, so I, I graduate from undergrad, and I go to work at a law firm, and I went to work as a paralegal, and it was really clear very quickly that the only people who had power were lawyers. So I'm like, that's it, I'm going to law school. But I left the the firm and went to work for the city of Alexandria as a budget analyst because I really do like numbers. And as a budget analyst, and then I could start going to law school. At the time, Georgetown was the only law school in the country that had an accredited night division. So I could work during the day and go to school at night. And law school is not cheap. Um, but that really worked for me. Mm-hmm. That that worked really well. And what I discovered about the law, which resonates with me in so many ways, is that the law only teaches you three things, period. The law teaches you to write. It teaches you to speak. And it teaches you to solve problems. But if you can do those three things, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. So I can do anything. Yeah, I am absolutely clear. In addition to being the oldest of five, I'm a lawyer. I can do anything,
1: you know. Were you bossy at the oldest of five, I
2: usually? <laughs> Absolutely. Do not interview my baby brothers, okay? Because they will talk to you about how I ran a tough shop. Yeah. Because the house had to be clean when my mom and dad got home. Homework had to be done. Yeah. You know, there were rules. Yeah. Well, bossy,
1: <laughs> you know, there's a big debate about girls being bossy, you know, and, and, and don't use that word. It's not a good thing. And, I, you know, it, it's it's called taking charge and someone has leadership to leadership
2: is always good.
1: It is leadership it is, is always
2: good. And yeah. and if you have three baby brothers, you know, they don't want to be told what to do. So they're going to describe you as bossy. And I really think that women ought to focus on that. You can't let other people define you. That's right. You have to be secure in your own strengths. And I had a really um, enlightening experience when I first came into the law, I I worked at a firm and they would, always criticized my writing, and I used to think I was a great writer, and they beat up on me so bad about my writing, and it was just, it was demoralizing, right? And my next position was at a corporation. I went inside, and the general counsel says to me one day after I had submitted some memo about something, she says, you know, you're the best writer we have ever seen. And I went, really? And she said, absolutely. Because the firm had so beat up on me, and the lesson I took from that was you don't let other people define you. Now, I listen to constructive criticism because I think every day you have the opportunity to grow and evolve and change. And so I take constructive criticism, but you don't let other people define you mm-hmm. because that's when you start to lose your confidence in yourself.
1: Yeah, and your voice. Would you say that that was always innate in you, or is that something you developed over time through your accomplishments?
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. I was raised in a family that really believed that we could do anything, that we just simply had to get the best education possible. And that if we did that, we could do anything.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, so (coughs) from a very young point, it was really clear. You can do anything. You have to work hard. You have to earn it. But you can do anything if you're willing to work hard.
1: Yeah, it's, it's something we have to constantly remind ourselves because things, I think we do. yeah, you have experiences that, you know, kind of give you a little bit of yeah. doubt.
2: They sometimes that, knock you off your socks. That's right. You know, and you have to find a way to regain yourself. And so I, one of the things I look at is who do you surround yourself with? Who are the people around you that you talk with? And you don't want to surround yourself with negative people. You don't control your work environment, but you control your personal circumstances. Don't keep negative people in your life they're not your friends if they don't see the best in you and yeah. they're not helping you to be your, your best and you're not helping them to be their best. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's talk about
1: your years uh, that you spent as a trial judge. Ah, um, I loved I, being on the bench. I bet, I yeah. bet. What You know, um, you were there for, I guess, from 1995 to 2011. That was a Correct. long time. Yeah. And um, you you saw a lot of tough things during that time.
2: I did. I did. Um, 13 of the years on the bench were in homicide. Mm -hmm. So I sat homicide for a really long time. And people used to say, how can you do this? Well, there were two things about it. Number one, when you sit homicide in a big city like Philadelphia, you get the very best cases. I had the best lawyers, both defense and prosecutors. I had the best cops. I got some of the I internationally renowned experts testifying in front of me. And if you're someone like me, I love constitutional law. I love the premise that the law makes life better. And I so for me, it was an incredible experience. Having said that, yeah, you see some horrible, horrible things. And my son was my saving grace because I had a commitment. As I said, we would have dinner together every day. I never missed a lacrosse game. I never missed a track meet. Never, you know. And no matter what it was, as you grew up, you know, it started with T-ball, with him chasing butterflies in the field before (laughs) he realized he was supposed to hit the ball. But, you know, it was a really big part of my life. But what that did for me is it gave me an anchor. I would literally do what I call a switch, an intellectual switch. I would have to leave all the horror and sadness that I saw behind me and go have dinner with him. Real deal is I'd pick it up after he went back to bed because I'd have to study motions, read new cases. But it is the most incredible intellectual experience to sit homicide. Now the sad part about it is that half the people in the room are going to be unhappy. One family's lost a loved one, another family very likely is going to lose a loved one. So people are not happy. I can't give them happiness. I can't bring back their loved one. I can't prevent their loved one from going to jail if they're guilty. But what I can give them is fairness. And what I've learned over the years is that if you can give people fairness, they can live with the consequences.
1: And closure, I guess. It does.
2: Fairness (laughs) gives you closure because you feel that you were heard, you were listened to, you were respected. And I held my team to a really high standard, my lawyers, my lawyers. My sheriffs, my officers, I held us all to a really high standard because people came to us at their most fragile. So we needed to give them our best and we needed to make it transparent to them that the law was fair. It doesn't always give you what you want, but it is always fair. And it's fair if we make it so. So for me, the court was an incredible experience. I loved it. <laughs> I loved what,
1: it. What was the most difficult? What was the, the toughest thing for you during those years?
2: Um, the toughest thing was the humanity of it, that I was dealing with people who were so hurt. Everyone had lost a loved one. Remember, I said homicide, so if you walked in my room, you'd lost a loved one. On the other side of the room, was a family whose loved one was accused of doing the most heinous crime there is. Your loved one was accused of taking a life. No mother, no grandmother raises their child to take a life. So these were really fragile times. And so that part was difficult in trying to move through that emotion and get them to a place where they could um, see that the process was working fairly. I think one of the most interesting things was getting jurors to understand their power. And the best thing that happens to me is that I'll be in the grocery store, I'll be in the gas station, I'll be in the mall, it doesn't matter. And somebody will come up and say, I was on one of your juries. And I'll go, was it a good experience? And they go, yes, it was a great experience. (laughs) I loved so much. I learned so much. And. That's a good thing for me, Mm -hmm. that citizens understand their power and they claim their power. So the worst thing you can ask me is, how do I get out of jury duty? Yeah, I don't. (laughs) If (laughs) you you care about the quality of life in our community, you serve on a jury. Yeah, yeah. Serve when called.
1: So what precipitated then your your move from that in Ah, 2011?
2: I've always known that I had more skills. When you're on the bench, you live a a monostatic life, you know, you really do. The community has to know when they walk in the room that you're fair, so you're not hanging out with lawyers, you're not hanging out with the people who are in front of you. People have to know that you're fair, so it's a very monostatic, very cloistered life. And I knew I had more to give the community. And I want it in some ways to help the community on the front end. You know, you lose your voice. You don't get to speak on issues because, again, you can create a perception of bias. And I never wanted to do that. So it's very, very interesting. I um, I talked to a friend who's a headhunter, and she said to me, you know, judges are hard to place. People don't understand judges. And I'm like that's okay. You know, I love being a judge. I've got plenty of time. And then it was almost a year later, she called and she said, the Red Cross is looking for a CEO. And I went, Hmm, that's an important work. I could care about that. <laughs> I could do that. <laughs> I could do that. I could care about that, you know. And and so it began, you know. It's
1: a big job. <laughs> it's a big, big job.
2: It's a big job. In fact, we've just gone through a reorganization. And originally when I took the job, I was responsible for Philadelphia and the counties which surround it Bucks, Chester, Delaware, and Montgomery. And um Now, and that was 1.5 million people. Today, I'm responsible for 17 counties from the Delaware border to the New York border. So my team services 6.2 million people in the Commonwealth, which is half the Commonwealth's population. Half the Commonwealth's population lives in the 17 counties that we take care of. And so we have an incredible opportunity to make a difference in the Commonwealth.
1: Yeah, not only that, the work that you do is is so based on um, you know circumstance and what's going on, and that can change, as you know, this morning, you know, on a dime. Um, I would love to know what a typical day is for you. <laughs> you know, managing. I I read that you you know you have eighty full time employees, correct? Forty five part time, correct? And then five thousand volunteers. Um, that, that's a lot of, it's, it's a lot of different groups, a lot of different types of people that mm. are working, um, and doing the work they do for different reasons, different motivations. It's a lot of moving it's a, parts. Yes. Yeah. So just tell me, what's a typical yeah. day?
2: I am a planner by nature. So my days are, are planned from the time I wake up until the time I go to bed. There are meetings scheduled. There are things we have to do. However, To be successful in this position and any position like this, you have to be very flexible. You have to be um, fluid and willing to turn on a dime Mm -hmm. and readjust your schedule. And so I think that that intellectual agility to walk away from what you've planned to do. So, you know, we have in our footprint five to seven fires a night. The Red Cross responds every eight minutes across the nation somewhere. But in our footprint... There's five to seven disasters every 24 hours, dominantly fires. That's what you see most on the East Coast. But there's also building collapse, floods, ice storms, you name it, we deal with it. And so you have to be flexible and willing to adjust your schedule to deal with the crisis at hand. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the most um, important. I mean, that's the second most being flexible and agile is the second most important characteristic. I think the most important characteristic is to be able to articulate a vision for people. You know, you talk about my 5,000 volunteers, I actually want to triple that number. And you're like, why? Because there is so much to do. Our mission formally stated it's to prepare for, prevent, and re- to prepare for, respond to, and prevent disasters, to alleviate the human suffering associated with disasters. That's a lot of fancy words. What we promise to do is help. So we use volunteers in every aspect of our work. Our receptionist is a volunteer. Actually, there's five of them that cover the week. Um, but people can respond to disasters if they're a general and junkies. You know, people like to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. We have mental health workers, spiritual care workers. We have people who do community education and specialize in youth, who specialize in seniors. We have people who do community education, who speak other languages and work with different cultures, We have people who work in logistics, people who work in finance, people who work in IT, communications, event planning, you name it. If you've got a skill, we can find a way to use your skill to help our community.
1: Excuse me. The number of volunteers that you have presently, is that a number that has risen or decreased over the
2: years? It fluctuates. It grows. You know, for example, um, we have a cohort of volunteers. I call them Katrina Babies. There are people who came to the organization after Hurricane Katrina. We now also have Superstorm Sandy babies, people who volunteered because of Superstorm Sandy. So what happens is that there's some major significant event and Mm -hmm. it draws people to the Red Cross. But every day we have people who are drawn to the Red Cross because they experienced a fire or someone they loved experienced a fire or one of my uh, favorite, favorite volunteers, who's also a big donor, he loves the Red Cross because when he was in college, he got his lifeguard certificate from the Red Cross, which let him get a job at a resort, which started his career. Oh,
1: that's a great story. Exactly.
2: You know, he's an incredible man. So a lot of our volunteers have those kind of personal connections, Um People helping always. You know, mm-hmm. most people I meet, they walk up to me and they say, "I gave blood. I helped." And I say, "Yes, you did. You absolutely helped when you gave blood. Yeah. Would you like to do something else too?
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> we have plenty to do. We have
0: plenty to do. <laughs> plenty to do."
1: Um, I noticed in, in reading your your background that you you do quite a bit for the um, mental health field. Um, where did that interest come from?
2: When I was on the bench. Um, it was really clear to me that we were incarcerating people whom if we could address their underlying illness, then we wouldn't need to incarcerate them and the community would be safer. There were drug and alcohol problems. There were mental health disabilities. There were families that had abuse problems, which is another form of mental health dysfunction. And so I started off working with Public Health Management Corporation uh, looking at drug and alcohol issues, and then it became clear that people with mental health disabilities, and they, and that runs the gamut from post-traumatic stress disorder to being bipolar, that we were incarcerating unnecessarily. And so I worked with a, a team of people at the courthouse, and we created the first mental health court in Pennsylvania um, as a way to divert people who did not need to be locked up if they could be properly treated. And it was a partnership between the Department of Welfare, our local Department of Behavioral Health, um, the DA's office, the Public Defender's office, and the court to create this mental health court. So the it really arises from we can use our resources better and we can be more humane and make our community safer the mental health court and my interest in having people receive the care they need stems from that.
1: Yeah, that's I mean, that's preventative, right? That's
2: it's preventative, preventative uh, like action. Like getting a physical every year. Exactly.
1: Yes. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with Judge Renee Hughes, Chief Executive Officer of the American Red Cross. We'll be right back. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear, by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada, and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevedacouture.com. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Uh, again, my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm sitting here uh, today with Judge Renee Cardwell-Hughes, and she is the Chief Executive Officer of the American Red Cross for the Southeastern uh, Pennsylvania region. A big job, and and we spent the first half of the show really learning about um, her background and, and some of the things that kind of shaped who she is today. Um, your, your resume, is just incredibly extensive. I could never cover everything that you're involved in. Um, But one of the things um, I know that you do is you teach. Yes, I do. And you're an adjunct professor for three different universities, correct? Um,
2: Currently two. I I was an adjunct at Villanova and that came to an end. And now I'm an adjunct at Temple University Law School and Drexel University in the criminal justice program. It's very, it's like so much fun. If you want to stay young, teach. Yeah. Okay. because they will keep you young. Yeah, I bet. But you have to put some parameters on them. So one day. So one day we're in class and I I needed to bring up Watergate because we were talking about constitutional law, constitutional criminal procedure. And I brought up Watergate and they looked at me. And I'm like, oh, no, you do not have the luxury of making me feel old. So we're going to take a minute here and we're going to talk about Richard Nixon and we're going to talk about the Special Prosecutors Act. Stop. So, but they will keep you young. I bet. Yes. They absolutely keep you young. So, you know, teaching is, is, is so much fun and is really exciting. And with Temple Law School, we created this program, Disaster Recovery Law. It's not being taught anywhere else in the country. It's so cool. So when I left the bench, one of my favorite DAs also left the DA's office and went to Temple University to teach there. And so she's also a Red Cross volunteer. And we were talking and, and comparing the needs of our families. And I said, you know, there are a lot of legal issues that come up after a disaster that we need to help families with. So we came together and created this course. At Drexel, I teach capital punishment. I teach a course on punishment, the incarceration of America. And we incarcerate way too much in America, way too much. We don't use our resources wisely. And then I also teach constitutional criminal procedure. Constitutional law is the best law. It is so much fun. I know civil lawyers think that they are the most important not. When you're a civil <laughs> lawyer, you mess up. It's all about the money. Mm-hmm. I can give it to you and give you some interest and life is good. Mm-hmm. When you deal with criminal law, if I mess up, I can't give you back that time you spent in jail. I That's can't right. fix that you missed your baby's birthday party, your grandmother's funeral. Criminal law. and it's all You get to change the world. You get to change society. So teaching is fun. I love it. It's my release.
1: Do you think you'll do that you know, ongoing.
2: I don't think I'll ever stop teaching. Yeah, I really don't. Well, you're the oldest of five. You've been teaching forever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're so, teaching everyone you meet, right?
2: Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> I so got no, a lesson I, for you. I, I don't. So no, I don't think I'll ever stop teaching. I, I love them. I love their perspective, their insight, and it. It not only keeps you young, but it also humbles you because one of the things about leading a team, and I love my team. I have a great team at the Red Cross. But to have a great team, people have to feel empowered and they have to feel that they can bring their talents to bear and their insight. And so when you teach, you, you're you listening to alternative perspectives. Why? That's what I model in my workplace. I want to hear alternative perspectives because that diversity of thought makes us more powerful. Now, yeah, real deal is my job is to make a decision. I am the oldest. My job is to make a decision. But A good decision comes when you've incorporated everyone's perspective, and that's what makes us powerful.
1: Well, listening, right? Being a good listener makes for a good leader.
2: It really does. Yeah.
1: Um, One of the things I wanted to get your perspective on is is mentorship. Yes. We talk a lot about that, especially for women in today's world, having the ability to... um, be in contact with someone like you who's out there and and has accomplished something great and is successful. Young women today, I think, in particular, really need to have those conversations with women. and And I, I just want to know what your your take is on how we can best do that for for young women today.
2: There isn't a single solution. I, I mentor a lot of um, young women. I, I have high school friends of my son. That I talk with on a regular basis and touch base with them about their careers and where they're headed. I have a mentor who is a mid-level manager um, at Exelon. Um, We developed a friendship. Sometimes mentoring relationships are very formal. And one of my girlfriends has an incredible mentor who's been with her for the vast majority of her career and has really helped chart paths for her. And sometimes mentoring is is much more amorphous. Everyone that you work with can bring value and can touch you and and add add something to your skill set. So I guess what I would say to young women is that you want to reach out. You want to reach out to peers because they can sometimes bring value to you. Not sometimes, very often your peers bring value. So you want to have a a peer group, whether, you know, so you're joining a professional group, uh, women lawyers, women accountants, marketing society. You want to, you know, the form of executive women. Mm -hmm. You want to join a, a group where you will have peer relationships, but you also want to look through your organization and look for people who are above you and you seek them out because they may not reach down and hold your hand, seek them out and seek time with people who have accomplished what you've accomplished. I actually think that each one of us has an obligation to help someone walk the path. Mm -hmm. I tell my sister and my baby brothers all the time, it's not that I don't want you to make mistakes. I tell this to my son too. You're going to make mistakes in life. I just don't want you to make my mistakes. So I'm going to share my mistakes with you so that you can learn from them. And you'll make your own mistakes and it'll be all right. Mistakes don't break you. They actually toughen you. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things we say in the Red Cross, and it's how I lived my life, it's all about resilience. Mm-hmm. Life's going to knock you down. The challenge is how do you get up? You get up and you move forward. And so having that, so it's like a quilt. They're your peer group that helps you. There are the people you seek out at work. And then there are people that you seek out because they are highly accomplished and can bring value. So I mentioned my, uh, my young friend at Exelon. She and I have dinner together, you know, maybe every six weeks. But then I'll look up and I'll have a text from her saying, oh, such a such thing is going on, and we'll text back and forth. So it comes in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. It's important, and I think every woman... Every woman needs to own that she has something of value to share with a younger woman. Mm -hmm. I don't care what your career path is. One of my best, best confidants is a woman who stopped working outside the home 25 years ago. They made the decision when they had their child that she would stay home. Now, she's got an MSW, another master's. I mean, she's a highly educated woman. It was a choice they made for their family. She's one of my best confidants. We get together, we have lunch, I brainstorm with her. So in other words, don't be deterred by the rapping. You look for the wisdom. You look for the insight.
1: I, I was just gonna ask you if there's someone in your life, you know, that you consider a mentor. So that would is there. Anyone I have else?
2: several. My mother. And wow. my mother is a high school graduate as I shared earlier, but she's the smartest woman I've ever met. So I have a circle of people in my life now, not all of my mentors are women. Mm-hmm. Some of them are male, and you they know, should be. Yes. And they should be because again, diversity of thought is mm-hmm. very powerful. So there are, are several men in my life that I get together with and just brainstorm about mm-hmm. how am I handling this and how could I be better. And sometimes we just get together and talk football. <laughs> you know, but, you know yeah. I love football. Yeah. Little sad and disappointed today, <laughs> but I will get over it. Next year, the Eagles will be in the oh, big game. I hope so. I'm a you huge know?
1: fan as well.
2: Exactly. Fan. So, but you know, so again, don't be deterred by the trappings. You're looking for wisdom. You're looking for insight and perspective, mm-hmm. and that can come from many, many places. So, you know, it it's not necessarily a woman. It's a woman. It's a man. It's it's a person in a very different career than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a person who. Others might not understand their depth, you know. Uh, There was a, um, she's now retired, but there was a member of our team. She was an administrative assistant, and there's still one there today who, um, they both are significantly older than I am. And they'll come by and they'll say, okay, I saw how you handled that difficult situation. You did a good job. Let's pray. (laughs) It's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's good, or she'll come by and she'll say, "You lost your temper in that meeting. You're better than that. You can oh. do better. So again, you know, guidance people,
1: yeah, just kind of holding you accountable and giving you your, reminders and, reminders.
2: Yeah, and helping you along the path, people of goodwill helping you along the path. Yeah,
1: that's what it's all about. Yeah. you know you you are a strong, confident woman. Did you ever have a sense, um especially in the legal industry, that you know you were up against men? And you know, maybe you were kind of out there by yourself, you know, going against the, um, against the current. Did you ever have that sense, or did you just kind of do your own thing and, um, and not think about it?
2: No, I think about it a lot. I, I think about it a lot. And if you look at law schools, law schools are now fifty percent women, but if you look at major law firms, the and look at the partnership, the leadership of law firms, we still have a long way to go with respect to gender diversity, with respect to racial diversity. Um, love the profession has a long way to go. Um, no, I I am an incredibly optimistic person, but I'm also an incredibly grounded person. And there are some mountains that I know I won't get over the mountain, but trust me, I'm gonna make that path so smooth and so shiny for the person coming behind me that they're gonna go further than I did. No, there are times when it's not easy. We still live in a society in which men, there are some men who don't think women are as capable, as confident. They look for ways to exclude women. But here's the deal. Know your business. Know your business better than anyone. Understand the rules of the game. And be prepared to, as we say in my family, adapt, improvise, and overcome.
1: Oh, I love that.
2: That's, Say that one more time. Adapt, improvise, and overcome.
1: Yeah, very good.
2: Be not deterred by somebody else's failure to see your talent. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you mentioned wanting to one day have the number of volunteers uh, for the American Red Cross increase. Triple. Triple, okay. Triple. What, what are some other things that you'd like to see change for the American Red Cross?
2: For the American Red Cross? Um, wow. Wow. I'd love to really expand our capacity, which is why I need more volunteers, to expand our capacity to do more community education on preparedness. We do some wonderful things right now, and we make it really easy and accessible for people. So, for example, we have these um, apps that are free, absolutely free. You download to your cell phone. that can teach CPR, first aid. Um, to help you know what to do in an event of a hurricane. If you've got young kids, we have a a new app called Monster Guard. And Monster Guard is a game that you play with your kids that helps you teach them how to escape the home in times of fire. So we, um, because you really have two minutes to get out. And so you want to teach your children how to get out and how to get out quickly. So to that end, what I want to redo is help eliminate fire fatalities. It's a goal that the fire commissioner of the city of Philadelphia and I share. It's a goal that my board is leading a task force on. How do we do that? We ensure that every family has a working smoke detector. Every family has fire safety education. That would be enormously important for me. hmm That we we reduce those kinds of disasters, you know.
1: It's an incredible number that you mentioned every night. How every night, five to seven. Five to seven across the
2: across the region, across our region. Then, and most, for example, um, last year we did almost eight hundred. We responded to almost eight hundred disasters in southeastern Pennsylvania. If you look at our whole footprint, we responded to over 1,000 disasters, but 600 of those disasters were in the city of Philadelphia. So if we can reduce the incidence of fire by making sure that every family has a working smoke detector, that every family has a fire escape plan and knows two ways to get out of every room, that will make a difference. It will reduce fire fatalities in our community. It will make us safer. Another objective that I have is that one person in every family should know CPR, first aid, and how to use an AED. It's critical. I want to see, this is, this is my new initiative, I want to see every single youth coach, whether it's basketball, baseball, lacrosse, swimming, I don't care. I want somebody on that coaching staff trained on how to use CPR and how to use an AED, and I want every team to have an AED because that saves a life. If you can do CPR and get an AED to a person, within the first six minutes you can save a life. Mm -hmm. And in fact at the airport, if you go to the Philadelphia International Airport, there's an AED machine every 90 seconds as you're walking through the airport and all the staff are trained. They are so committed and they have in fact can document having saved six lives in the last 10 years.
1: That's hasn't. That's recent, isn't it? To have those machines there. Yes. Yeah.
2: Mark Gale, the head of the airport, is very committed. Yeah. Yeah. I love working with him. So he's constantly having his staff trained, and is really committed to making sure that you are safe yeah. in the airport.
1: You know, getting this kind of information out is always um, difficult, and uh, and social media. Allows us to really reach big numbers. You know, what yes. kind of ways do you
2: use? We social- love social media. Yeah. we love. We're all on Twitter, so you can follow us mm-hmm. at arc underscore eastern pa. If you put in arc, we'll pop up. You can follow us at Red Cross Philly. You can follow me at Judge R Hughes. We love social media, so we've got a Facebook page, uh, Red Cross Philly. Uh, so Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You name it, we're there. We've got so much stuff on YouTube. You should check us out on YouTube. We put up new videos constantly on YouTube about our responses, about safety techniques and tips. You know, but we touch people in all kinds of ways. We have this camp. It's a completely free camp. Everything that we do is free. Now, CPR First Aid AD is a class, and it does cost money, but we do raise money for scholarships to help people take that class. Um, But we have this camp. It's called Camp Save a Life. And Camp Save a Life is for 10 to 14-year-olds. And what we teach them is we teach them CPR, first aid. We teach them about fire safety. We teach them survivor swimming, which is a really important skill, water safety, survivor swimming. The most important thing we teach them is leadership because that's really what it's all about, how to be a leader, to be an independent thinker. I love Camp Save a Life.
1: Yeah. And to jump into action, right? To if jump in. I mean, you have to be somebody who, res, you know, responds. You have, to, and-
2: you have to be someone who's confident and knows that you can handle whatever situation is presented to you and you can help others handle the situation.
1: Do they teach CPR in schools?
2: We want them to. Mm -hmm. It's one of our um, initiatives that we present to the legislature each year. We'd like for it to be added to the curriculum and Pennsylvania schools. Um, Candidly, the Pennsylvania schools have some other priorities right now, but I continue to raise this issue with the legislature that we need to have CPR, first aid, AED um, training Mm -hmm. as part of our high school graduation. It will make us all safer. Yeah. And that's it could really be part the part of the to, health, you know, the health the health or, curriculum. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's our goal. Yeah. Our goal is that it will become part of the high school curriculum.
1: Good. Yeah. Um I'd love to know what you do in your downtime do you have, <laughs> between between midnight and 2 a.m.
2: <laughs> so, OK, Devi- uh, vices and devices, right? Uh, chocolate. Uh, love chocolate. Absolute chocoholic. And I like to run. I- I'm not a great runner. OK, but I'm a person who loves running. So I I love to run. I I like to go um I like to run outside, but I like to go to the gym. I I am seeking to master what most people call the stairmaster I call it the stairway to hell cuz that bad boy <laughs> will beat you into the earth but I'm on it I'm working it you know so um I like to work out but so the things that bring me real joy I love the theater mm. I like the theater here in Philly we actually have we, great regional we, theater we do. and we I do. love going to New York and I like to eat, which is why I like to work out, because I like <laughs> to eat. And, and let me tell you something. We are a great region for food. We are. Well, oh, gosh, yeah. we've
1: come so far. So
2: far. Yeah. We have some of the best food in the country. We really do. And from all price points. <laughs> yes. You know, from, a, from food carts all the way up to the five stars, we do food well. So I like to hang out with my family, eat. I like to dance. Uh, I danced my, um, gosh... From uh, first grade all the way through college. You I dance Oh, uh, Ballet and modern dance. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the things that I like to do in my downtime. My most important chunk of downtime is just being with my son. Yeah. Yeah. And he's local. No, I wish he were. Oh, he's, he's at Fort Sill, oh, Oklahoma. Yes.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. How at... often can he travel home?
2: Well, he came home for Christmas, mm-hmm. and I went to Fort Sill for Thanksgiving. They mm-hmm. cooked their first Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> they cooked everything. How what's it? Well, really interesting. They use more butter and sugar than I have seen in decades. Butter you know? and sugar in the turkey? No, everywhere. <laughs> Butter and the turkey, sugar and the and the deviled eggs. But, um, you know, one thing that I, I do want to say when you ask about funny, and you ask him about my son and his wife, they have joined me every year. And I'm so hoping they can join me this year for Red Ball. Mm-hmm. Red Ball encompasses all my passions. Okay? OK. Red Ball is March 7th and it's at the Please Touch Museum, which is in a great, great, great adult playground. So it is the most black tie fun you will have see people hear red ball and they think oh yeah right I do not want to go sit at another table of 10 and be bored to death no we get black tie gorgeous we're all dressed up and then we have 30 restaurants and their food stations so you don't sit at a table you move Mm. from food station to food station to food station and then we have different restaurants that come in and bring desserts we have a beer garden we have a vodka shot station we have four different kinds of music oh yeah jazz in the vip lounge we have funk because i told you i like to dance (laughs) so in the carousel room we actually the carousel will actually be working people will get on the carousel in their tuxedos and evening gowns that makes for great photos it is <laughs> so much fun. So if people should go to our website, which is redcrossphilly.org, or they can go to the theredball.org and find out how to join us for the Red Ball. I, I promise you, Susan, you will not have more fun than at the Red Ball. It is actually the best party in Philadelphia. And the cool thing about it is, all of the money from your tickets will go to support disaster relief in our community.
1: No, that's a great cause. Um so obviously tickets are still on sale does it sell out
2: It typically it will sell out so people should go to check it out check out the website at red, theredball.org or redcrossphilly.org and it because um you don't want to miss it
1: Yeah is that the one big fundraiser for the American Red Cross
2: I'd love to annually? say yes but no, no because we have a 5k for runners we have a marathon in the Poconos that is a qualifier for the Boston Marathon yeah, so we have a golf tournament. One of the coolest things we have coming up is our Citizen of the Year breakfast, which will honor an outstanding leader in the community. This year we're honoring David Cohen. Um, David Cohen used to be chair of our board, and he's one of my, my friends and partners. And during Hurricane Sandy, uh, David and Brian Roberts used NBC10 Universal, Mm-hmm. To raise thirty three million dollars for disaster relief, Wow.
1: That's a big number.
2: It's a big number. It's a big number. Comcast is a big player. Yeah, you know, but we have um so we have lots of events because, again, we're such a diverse community. Some people like golf, so they'll come out to our golf tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, the red ball usually appeals to everybody from nine to ninety, um, or I should say nineteen to ninety. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but um, but so we have lots of events. We have we have one event that I hope you'll support this coming year. It's called Spectrum, and it's where we honor signature women, women who have really made a difference in our community. And we use this also as a vehicle to showcase younger women. So we'll honor a woman of significant accomplishment. So, Cherise Lilly, um, Judy Von Selnick, you know, women of significant accomplishment in our community. But we have a program called Twinkle Stars because we use the money from Spectrum to support disaster relief, but also to provide scholarships for Twinkle Stars who are high school girls who are going to college. And the Twinkle Star Scholarship helps them cover the expenses for scholarship. So it helps raise up the next generation of leaders.
1: Yeah, another, another way to do that. Um, we only have a few minutes left. I'd love for you to just leave um, a bit of advice for, for the listeners. If there's a woman listening who um, perhaps is um, wanting to kind of take that next step towards, uh, you know, promotion, let's say, and she's not sure about her abilities, what would you say?
2: I think the most important thing is to be honest with yourself. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? If your weaknesses are impeding your ability to make that next step, then take action to correct them. You know, so in other words, be your best. Mm -hmm. That's my first advice to you to be your best. And then my second advice to you is to have faith. Step forward. Okay. This is very, very, very trite, but it is very true. So what's the worst thing that happens when you reach for the moon? If you don't hit the moon, you fall among the stars. You're still way ahead of where you were yesterday. So believe in yourself and go forward and know that life can't take you down if you don't let it. You rise back up and you go forward. So I say, give it all you've got. Go forward. Surround yourself with people who love you because they'll catch you when you fall and they'll push you back out the door again. Yeah. Get up. Believe in yourself.
1: I love that. Um, thank you so much. I so enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate. I know how busy you are, um, and if you could just leave the audience with your contact information. Absolutely, especially for some volunteers.
2: Okay, so yeah. I'm very easy to find. You go to um, redcross.org, and that'll take you to our volunteer connection website. You can reach me. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Judge R Hughes. I'm really easy to reach. Very good. It's so easy.
1: <laughs> That's it, everyone. Thank you so much. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with me, please reach out to my website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone.